Hi, George Lavender here. Just a reminder that if you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and clicking on the big donate button. And if you haven't done so already, you can also rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks a lot. Here's the show. This week on Making Contact. In writing this book, there were, in fact, some black people who were extremely crucial producers of racist ideas. The vast majority of the characters of producers in my book are are white, but there were a few key black producers. William Hannibal Thomas, who was called the Black Judas, uh, who operated at the turn of the 20th century. And he wrote a book called The American Negro in 1901 that was one of the most vicious attacks on black people in this book. Another example is E. Franklin Frazier, who popularized the idea of the broken black family and the pathological black mother. That idea, of course, was popularized by Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the Moynihan Report in 65. But if you read the Moynihan Report, he's constantly citing E. Franklin Frazier. And who does E. Franklin Frazier praise uh, for uh, inspiring his study, none other than W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, study of the Negro family. Can anti-racist, well-meaning advocates for justice, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, William Lloyd Garrison, Gloria Steinem, and Barack Obama, also be proponents of racial segregation? On this edition, we'll hear from Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, an assistant professor of African-American history at the University of Florida. His new book, Stamped from the Beginning, the Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America provides an intellectual history of prejudice in the U.S., stating that most anyone can be a certain level of racist based on assimilationist thinking that has served to reinforce beliefs about racial inferiority in America. Up next, we'll share a talk with Dr. Kendi's insights on racist ideas, their origins, and influence in shaping founding principles in our nation's institutions. I'm Anita Johnson, your host this week on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. We've been taught this American history of steady and continuous and forward racial progress. And we've been taught it's been this sort of singular force of racial progress. And we've been taught that Obama, of course, became, in a sense, the sort of climax of racial progress in this country. Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? And and we have been taught that, yeah, you know, sometimes we take a step backward, but we're continuously taking steps forward. And so this common sort of idea about America's racial history was one of the first things that I had to interrogate in writing a history of racist ideas. And I quickly found that this popular history is actually incomplete. And in studying the history of racist ideas, in studying America's racial history more broadly, I did not see this sort of singular historical force. I actually saw two historical forces. I saw a force of anti-racist progress or racial progress, but I also saw a simultaneous force of the progression of racism or racist progress. And so I saw anti-racist continuously breaking down barriers. And I saw 
racists continuously erecting new and more sophisticated barriers to hold people back. I saw racial progress in the simultaneous progression of racism. Anti-racist progress and racist progress. I think if we understand America's history in that way, we can understand precisely how a Donald Trump could follow a Barack Obama. Because throughout American history, racist progress has been following anti-racist progress. But in many cases, Americans were not able to see the progression of racism. In the last 40 or 50 years, we have not, Americans, generally speaking, have not been able to see the progression of racism. We've been taught this history that racism over the last 40 years has become more covert, that racist ideas have become more unconscious and more implicit, right? When in fact, I contend it was actually racist ideas or that was actually becoming more sophisticated and racist policies that were becoming more sophisticated. And so if you were not able to see them, it's because of their sophistication. And racist ideas to me have been key in preventing people from seeing the progression of racism. And I actually define a racist idea in a, in a very sort of simple way. Uh, as Kevin stated, I tried to figure out a way to make this book and make its concepts as accessible as possible while simultaneously not losing the complexity of race, right? Because you can have something that is extremely, you can have a concept that's extremely sophisticated while simultaneously being accessible to people. You know, I, I read a lot about Malcolm X. That's precisely what, to me, was great about him. He was able to present very sophisticated concepts in a manner that people could understand, right? And I think that, to me, is what scholars, is what activists, is what people should be doing, right? So I define a racist idea very simply. Is any idea that suggests a racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group in any way. Any idea that suggests a racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group in any way. So, but then when we break down that definition, there's actually a lot of complexities in it. And so when I say in any way, I'm not just talking about those ideas that suggest that black people are biologically or genetically distinct and inferior. And stand from the beginning, I should say, chronicles anti-black racist ideas. So I'm not just referring to, to ideas of biological racial hierarchy. Even ideas that suggest that black people are culturally inferior. Even ideas that suggest black people are behaviorally inferior. So not just biology, but also culture and behavior in any way. The other important a concept in that definition is racial group. And so when I say racial group, I'm not just referring to black people in general. Black people are a collection of racial groups. And each and every racial group 
is identified in multiple different ways. In other words, within the, quote, black race, there are many different groups that are differentiated by gender, differentiated by class, differentiated by ethnicity, by sexuality, by nationality, by skin color, by profession, and on down the list. And all of these differentiations create new racial groups. So in other words, black women are a racial group. And there's been a long history of ideas that have been created and produced to specifically denigrate black women. Black men are a racial group. Right, and there have been racist ideas that have been created to specifically target and denigrate black men. So when we're thinking about racist ideas, it's not just ideas suggesting that black people are inferior, even ideas suggesting each and every one of these groups are inferior or racist ideas. And so in order to chronicle this history, I also had to chronicle all of the different, many of the different ideas targeting many of these different sort of racial groups. And one of the ways that I wanted to explain how that operated for the reader is sort of adding new terms. One of the terms that I used in the text is what one scholar called gender racism. So ideas that specifically suggest that a black gendered group is inferior. Or another sort of term I used was class racism. So ideas at the intersection of elitist ideas or capitalist ideas with racist ideas, suggesting that there was something wrong, let's say, with the black poor, right? And of course, there's a lot of ideas suggesting that there's something wrong or inferior about the black poor. The same thing with queer racism, ideas suggesting that Black lesbians are more hypersexual than black heterosexual women is a concept of queer racism. Another idea is ethnic racism. And so I chronicled, again, many of these different sort of forms of ideas. But even within racist ideas, I found that there were two kinds of racist ideas. And so I actually found that there was more of a three way debate about race in America historically. And this three-way debate was based on these two kinds of racist ideas constantly uh, struggling against anti-racist ideas. The two kinds of racist ideas, the first kind is what I call segregationist ideas. Segregationist ideas historically have stated that black people are permanently inferior. And they're permanently inferior because they're genetically inferior. And so segregationist ideas typically look out at racial inequality and they blame black people for racial inequality. And then they also state that racial inequality is permanent because black inferiority is permanent. But another group that I call assimilationist ideas have challenged these segregationist ideas and stated that no, we're created equal. That black people are not inferior by nature. Black people are not inferior genetically. We're biologically the same. But it is the case that black people became inferior. That black people are not inferior by nature. Black people are inferior by nurture. 
They're inferior due to their inferior culture. They're inferior due to their inferior environment. And so for really the first 200 or 300 years of the debate between racist ideas, between segregationist ideas and, and assimilationist ideas, was this debate between what I call curse theorists and climate theorists. And they were trying to debate the origins of inferior blackness. Curse theorists were saying that blackness and black skin and black people being enslaved was because black people were the cursed descendants of Ham. But climate theorists, these people made the case that God was white, Adam and Eve were white, the descendants of Adam and Eve at some point in time ventured from the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was, of course, where? In Europe. Uh, they ventured at some particular point in time to the south. They arrived in Africa, and their beautiful white skins were burnt by the sun, and so was their culture. But these climate theorists made the case that the way to eliminate blackness was by urging black people to venture back up north to cooler climates. And if they get into that cooler, better environment, then their ugly black skins will become white again. This was climate theory. So in early America, climate theory held the racial discourse. And so this, this assimilationist idea that, yes, we're created equal, Yes, it's the case that we can civilize and develop black people, that black people have the capacity to become white for climate theorists in a literal sense. This was assimilationist theory. And again, they were challenging those segregationists that were saying that no, black people can never become white. They can never become white. They can never be civilized. They will always be barbaric. And so then you had Assimilationists and segregationists constantly arguing against each other. And then on the sort of margins of the racial discourse, you had anti-racist ideas, suggesting that not only are the racial groups genetically equal, as has recently been found to be the case, not only are they culturally equal, that despite cultural differences, that neither culture, no one's cultures are inferior, but even the racial groups are behaviorally equal. And assimilationists, in particular, could never, and even still to this day, cannot fathom that the racial groups are equal behaviorally. Assimilationists, particularly the more progressive ones, have made the case that, no, okay, it is the case that the racial groups are culturally equal. But it is the case, assimilationists have long said, that slavery, and its horrors literally made black people inferior. Segregation literally made black people behaviorally inferior. Poverty has literally made black people behaviorally inferior. There's no way that a group of people could live through the horrors of slavery, segregation, and poverty and not come out the other side behaviorally inferior. That these oppressive institutions assimilationists have argued, were not just dehumanizing, they actually literally did dehumanize black people. And anti-racists have been like, okay, 
Where's your evidence? There's no evidence. And so this has really been this three-way debate. You're listening to Dr. Ibram X. Kendi discuss his latest book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America on Making Contact. To find out more about this week's show, check out our website at radioproject.org. Sign up for our podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to Dr. Ibram X. Kendi discussing the intellectual history of prejudice in America. Why were these ideas continuously produced and reproduced over time? What function have they played historically? And and so I ended up distinguishing very early on in my research between the producers of racist ideas and the consumers of racist ideas. I chronicled the producers of racist ideas. I wanted to understand why they were producing those ideas at that time. And I had been taught that these producers of racist ideas were ignorant, that they just hated black people, that it was really ignorance and hate that was behind their production of these racist ideas. And and I had also been taught that it is these people who had these racist ideas, that these were the people who instituted the racist policies, like slavery, segregation, or even mass incarceration. Like, that's the line of thinking that I went into this book with. And so I wanted to simply verify it. And so again, when I actually studied these producers and tried to figure out their motives, tried to understand the emergence of these ideas within the historical context, I found over and over again that these people did not hate black people. Some of them actually loved black people, a la one of the major characters in this book, Thomas Jefferson. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And some of these people were some of the most brilliant American minds. John C. Calhoun, when he went up before the Senate in 1837 and stated that slavery was a positive good, he was a slaveholder. He knew that slavery was maintained through brutal and constant violence. And so, you know, I found over and over again that these people were not ignorant and hateful. They were the most informed of the effects of their racist policies. Why? Because in many cases, these policies were benefiting them. And so I I found that these people were not ignorant and hateful. These people were actually creating and producing these racist ideas to justify existing racist policies, to rationalize the racial disparities in American society that were coming out as a result of those policies. And why was these policies so important to them? Because they benefited from them. They benefited from them economically, politically, culturally, right? So they created the policies to, in order for them to maintain office or gain office. It was a clear political self-interest, right? And then they created the idea to justify that policy, to make you and I believe that that policy is worthy, that that policy is needed, that policy that benefits them. And then after these policies have been established, 
then people are creating racist ideas to justify those policies. And then they're circulating those racist ideas. And Americans are consuming them. And then after they consume them, that's when they're becoming ignorant and hateful. That's the history that I tell. Right? And so then it allows us to understand precisely why many of these race-related reform efforts towards education and persuasion have failed. Ever since the beginning of this nation, racial reformers have been trying to educate and persuade away the powerful producers of racist ideas. We've been trying to tell them, you know what, you have no evidence for voter fraud. Why do you continue to say that there's voter fraud? Thinking, right, that if we only show them the evidence, that they will then stop articulating that idea. But couldn't it be the case that they knew that even before they articulated the idea? So then it, be, it sort of begs the question, right? If education and persuasion won't solve the problem of racist ideas, what will? Well, black folk have been taught that the way to get people, particularly white people, to not think that we're inferior is to ensure that when we go in white spaces that we do not perform black stereotypes. That we don't, quote, act black, if y'all know what I mean. That, that we don't act lazy, that we don't demonstrate this notion of hypersexuality, that we don't, are, we don't perform these so-called black characteristics in an effort to persuade away their ideas, to show them by our very presence, by our very uplift, by our very upstanding manner, right, that their ideas about black people are false. In the book, I call this uplift suasion. And it is a very old idea. It was largely created by white abolitionists in the 1790s as more and more black people were becoming free. And these white abolitionists went into these burgeoning free black communities and stated that, you know what, if you really want to convince, if you really want to end slavery, you have to, by your own mannerisms, by your own behavior, persuade away the racist ideas of white people. And black elites in particular took on this idea and have been passing it on ever since. And I know, for me, <laughs> I have been concerned about the way I act in front of white people, thinking that I had the whole race on my shoulders. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? And, and, and so, in, in researching this book, I realized that this strategy of up-dissuasion is actually based on a racist idea. This very old and popular strategy inside and outside of the black community. It's based on an idea that black people somehow are responsible, bear some responsibility for the racist ideas that white people have about them. And to suggest that black people are responsible in any way for racist ideas is to suggest there's some truth in notions of black inferiority. And of course, to suggest some truth 
To suggest that there's some truth in notions of black inferiority is to hold racist ideas. But not only is this strategy based on a racist idea, it's also impossible for black people to execute. Why? Because black people are human. And to be human is to be imperfect. And unfortunately, when black people are imperfect, their imperfections are, their negative imperfections are generalized to say that black people are like that. So we can't have an off day. We can't have a lazy day because then that means that black people are lazy, right? Our behaviors are constantly generalized in the ways that behaviors of white people are not. They say, no, that guy is crazy. <laughs> no, that white woman is, is this, right? But for black people, no, they say black people, right, are like that. So it's impossible for black people to execute because black people are imperfect. And actually, that's what makes the racial groups equal, are their imperfections. That's what makes them human, are their imperfections. And, and, but not only is this strategy impossible for black people to execute, when black people do execute it, what people do is they say, oh, you're extraordinary. You're an extraordinary Negro. That, I mean, my final chapter, which covers the rise of Barack Obama, is entitled The Extraordinary Negro. And what that means is you're not like those ordinary, inferior black people. You're the exception to the rule of inferiority. So what I'm saying is, so if education won't work, if persuasion won't work, if uplift suasion won't work, then, then, then what will work? Well, actually, what has worked consistently has been challenging racist power. <laughs> challenging racist power through protest, challenging racist power through social movements, challenging racist power on an individual level. But we should know that protest is largely a short-term solution. Challenging racist power is a short-term, never-ending solution. That a more permanent and lasting solution is for people to get in positions of power. At its very core, racism has always been a power struggle from the beginning. And so to win this struggle, is to gain power. But we've seen black people get in positions of power in this country, in nations around the world, but the conditions of racial inequality has not changed. And, and, and so then it, it, it causes us to sort of think, okay, so, so it's not as simple as black people getting into positions of power, and the reason why it's not that simple is because black people too could be thrust into a position of power, and they too can execute discriminatory policies against black people. They too, with those policies, can widen racial inequality, and they too could justify those inequities by blaming black people. And really, the focus should not necessarily be, I would argue, on black people getting in positions of power. I would maintain that instead of us calling for black power, 
that 50 years later we should be calling for anti-racist power. And we need anti-racist ideas of racial equality to be the common sense of the people. And we don't just need anti-racist ideas to be the common sense of the people, we need that anti-racist common sense of the people to hold those leaders and those policies accountable. And that'll do it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to KPFA for hosting and recording Dr. Kendi's talk. If you're still trying to wrap your head around how well-meaning Americans contributed to racial segregation and certain thoughts about racial inferiority, share this episode with friends and talk about it. Just visit our webpage where you can download this episode and past shows. You can also subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Twitter at radioproject.org. Lisa Rubman is our executive director. Producers include Anita Johnson, Marie Che, Monica Lopez, and RJ Lozada. Audience engagement and web director Sabine Blazin, development associate Vera Tykolsker, and I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>